people just don't know exactly what is the function of these proteins, so they sometimes appear and nobody knows why exactly they are present there. But in the end, you are guessing. So every year, the efficiency of the flu vaccine changes no? because uh, you didn't aim perfectly. Some people just don't create the correct antibody. In some of these villages, they didn't have electricity, but everyone had a smartphone. Disclaimer. What you're about to hear represents the thoughts and opinions of the participants at the moment of recording. We reserve the right to change our minds. Hey, this is Luis Wilco of the Work On Podcast. Today I'm bringing you a conversation with a very interesting person, my friend Hugo Samano. We met at the age of 16 during the Mathematical Olympiads and afterwards he developed interest in molecular biology and went off to study genomic sciences. Now, recently completed his PhD at the European Molecular Biology Laboratory in Heidelberg, Germany. In this episode, he talked to me about his travels, viruses, antibodies, and vaccines. Hope you enjoy it. Hugo Samano, how are you? Hi Luis, very good, and you? Very good, very good. I think out of all of my friends, you're the one that lives the traveling life or has had the chance to live that life. And I've been also always very curious about like how how do you manage to do all those all that traveling and living that that kind of life? So can you tell us? For, I think we should start from the beginning. Like, what are you up to right now, and how, how do you get into all that? Well, I'm currently living actually in our hometown, so yeah, it's not really. as exciting as as you maybe thought. <laughs> <laughs> but but that's because of the current situation of the pandemic. Yeah. But yeah, before that, I think my business was to travel so i got paid for traveling you got paid for traveling yeah yeah so i did a um a master's with a scholarship yeah i was in in switzerland and then in singapore and then i got another scholarship to do my phd that was in germany and that's the only reason why i can travel and then when you are doing science uh, you get invited to conferences to courses uh-huh. And I think that's why I like science because you can get this this chance. This ch- okay. Part of your work is that you should travel because then you can share what you are doing or you can learn right. from somebody else. At least in the yeah. previous model, no. But now I don't know what's gonna happen. Yeah, and, the, and a year ago, then things just changed all of a sudden, and now who knows what's gonna be in, in the next iteration of the world. So, how many countries have you lived in? Because you also lived in um, China, as far as I'm remember no no that that was it was not china no i was there uh, for a conference and oh you were there for a conference oh, okay. and before as a tourist uh-huh. but yeah i'm 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 planning to move there actually that's that's my next uh, seriously se- uh-huh. uh, yeah position what's the reason oh to do my postdoc oh your postdoc yeah. were in uh, beijing or <laughs> no it's actually a small city in the south of shanghai uh-huh. It's a um, joint university between Cheyang University and the University of Edinburgh. Oh, oh that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh-huh. an international campus, so I think it's a good way to enter into the Chinese culture, I hope. Yeah, I had a chance to visit Shanghai. It was probably uh, the most Western-friendly part that I've been. Yeah, yeah. And, and more or less. Yeah, they say that uh, at least it's the city that has the largest um, number of foreigners living there, but it's so big that you don't really notice that. 
So what's the the city of that you're going to? What, what what's the name? It's called Hainin. Hainin. It's, it's really it's really not famous. It's it's actually the size of our hometown. So in of in Asian that... terms, is is super tiny, yeah. but well, it's already a city. Like um, it has everything. Yeah. So what other countries have you lived in? No, that's all. Um, Switzerland for a few months, then Singapore, and then Germany. So you started traveling when you were, uh, that, that was in 2012? 2013, that's when I started my master's, but but yeah, I did my university also, not here, no? I did it in Cuernavaca, yeah, so Cuernavaca. actually I've been living uh, far from my hometown and my family for quite yeah. a long time already. Yeah, how does it feel to be back? For <laughs> uh, have, You've been back for a year already? Uh, no, since July. July. Uh, well, it's challenging, right? Because um, I'm used to live uh, by myself, to cook by myself, to solve, have my whole life um, by myself. And now, yeah, it's a different way of living, right? To, to also collaborate on the domestic uh, things. <laughs> and then yeah. um, in isolation, because uh, also like my friends, like you, uh, they all are gone. And also we should be in isolation. So it's a yeah. totally different yeah dynamic and at, at some point it's tiring but then you get used to it, and then again it's like oh my god another month that i need to still be waiting to for stay the inside so are you just waiting for a visa right now to start yes. your postdoc yeah 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 exactly yes yeah. that's, that's a limiting step as soon as i can get my visa then i'm moving did you have the chance to start like remotely or to start working on that project yeah, actually, I'm I'm teaching already. So oh, it works by lectures or by weeks. So I don't have a complete course, but then I, I was invited to do some teaching on, on different courses, of course, on things that I have done. So I, I'm already like quite into the institute. The institute has a, a non-degraded program. So it's, it's a small institute and it's a small program with like 25 students per class. Um, uh -huh. So yeah, some of the classes are online and uh, it's not only me that I'm not there, it's other people that also cannot be traveling for the teaching activities or as they usually did. So yeah, it's everything online. So it's probably in a way sort of convenient for the program that they have someone that is outside of the time zone. Well, I don't know, people in, in my university because there's a lot of undergrads that are coming from China too. Mm -hmm. So a, a friend that I know that is teaching, he uh, decided to move uh, to Taiwan. So like, oh, it's, it's very convenient to be in Taiwan because now you can interact with people uh, from Waterloo that live in China. <laughs> so it's, it's like a, a mix of time zones. Yeah, now, now imagine the, the meetings from the teachers. So they, they, you have teachers that are from UK, China, uh -huh. and now Mexico. And it's it's really complicated to so always one person or one team has to suffer having a meeting at seven a.m. or at eleven p.m. or even worse. Three in the morning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I avoid no. these ones. I I just say no, I can't. Yeah, no, that that'll be for the good. Uh, so you did biology, right? When you when you moved to Cuernavaca. Yeah, uh, yeah, molecular biology. Actually, the program is called uh, genomic sciences. But yeah, uh -huh. it's, it's molecular biology. A bit focused towards computational biology. So that's maybe the, the big difference. And in your master's, what, 
what do you do do you continue on that path it's, or you change to something else uh, so i did my master's on infectious diseases or yeah infectious biology huh. um but always from the point of computational biology so i didn't change this but but let's say i included things about diseases immunology but i was working on data analysis no so now uh, oh, by okay. that time i was analyzing data from lipidomics so this is like uh, some lipids fat in the cells and then you analyze somebody does experiment um, gets the data and then i analyze this data and also i helped on other things that require uh, bioinformatics so you use a tool that somebody else developed and then you use it on on a certain data set uh -huh. coming from the people that did experiments and then you try to get an, a conclusion or an interpretation of this data so that's what i did during this time and then um, for my phd again i continue on, on computational biology and this time i was uh, not working with lipids but with proteins actually some short um, proteins that are um, that form some motifs so regular patterns and that was also um, on data from pathogens you know, like bacteria so i've been i've been jumping from different pathogens but always like applying computational things uh, uh -huh. to data from biological experiments and and i think that's what i will continue doing because that's what i can do <laughs> no, that's what i like yeah, that's your jam. So that's how you will define computational biology, is uh, using yeah. computational tools into biology, biological, uh, exactly. biological exactly. applications. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Apply. Yeah, exactly this. <laughs> yeah, it can be also theoretical. So you can you you don't always need to have uh, data coming from an experiment. You can do uh, modeling. You, know? you can uh, uh -huh. say, okay, let's suppose that this pathway or this biological mechanism works like this. And then you try to model everything, no? You will have to say like, oh, okay, I don't know about these uh, specific um, constants or mechanisms, but then you say, oh, let's, let's say it's like this, and then you do something, interpretations. But then uh, maybe in the future, there is some data regarding this experiment, and then you apply it, and then you improve it, or you can use real data or, or you don't. So the modeling will allow you to kind of abstract away the things that you don't understand yet from the experiment and yeah, then yeah. once you have more data then you plug in the the particular things that you didn't know exactly exactly yeah um, so I, I, I think i didn't really understand the part where you said that so you, you're working with pathogens but then uh what does it have to do with the pathogens and then the lipids and the proteins is it lipids and the bacteria or yeah of course what? no yeah 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 so pretty much I think yeah, all all living organisms, so humans, uh -huh. bacteria, viruses, if they are living, they are made out of nucleic acids, no, like the DNA, and proteins, yeah, like the meat, and lipids, uh -huh. like cholesterol. Uh -huh. So these are like different kinds of molecules that you can measure with very different experiments, and each of these experiments will tell you something about um, what's happening in these cells or organisms. So you can, for example, see how a cell a human cell, for example, the ones in the blood, the erythrocytes, how they change after they get infected with malaria, with a malaria parasite. Okay. So it can either study how the lipids that are from the parasite change or how the lipids of the host cell, so the human cell, are changing. But you can also uh, study 
what are the proteins that are uh, being produced exactly at the site or at, at the moment of the infection. No? So this is a different level or a different kind of protein, and then you can measure, um, okay, this bacteria, when it infects a host cell, either it just stays next to the host cell or it actually enters, then uh -huh. the, the bacteria starts producing new proteins that didn't produce before. And then you study why, or you guess if you're a computational biologist, uh, why this protein is being produced at this point. And then you study, okay, this protein looks like this, maybe it folds like this, or it has these elements. And then you say, ah, maybe it's interacting with this thing from the host, or maybe it's a toxin that is forming a pore or something. No? And you can also study the DNA for other reasons. So, so yeah, viruses, they, they also have lipids, they also have proteins, they also have DNA, and then uh, you can study any of these three, or if you can study all of them at the same time, to study what is this, what probably this virus will do or what is actually doing the infection. Uh -huh. So let me see if I kind of have some high-level uh, understanding of it. So if a virus comes and infects a host and then the host produces some protein or uh, some sort of molecule, and you study what are the consequences of the, the fact that the molecule was produced or what are the what happens after the molecule was produced like that but, uh... yeah because in in many cases you already know these molecules no so maybe mm -hmm. people already understood that a certain protein is produced when there is an infection by another pathogen a famous one and then this time you're working with a new pathogen and then the molecule the same molecule is being produced so you can now okay uh, oh. check review what is known about this other protein and then say oh this in this new pathogen, the same pathway or the same uh, mechanism is being uh, turned on uh -huh. in, in this type of cell. Oh, I see. That, but actually, why we need a computational biologists is because proteins are um, several thousand, maybe 20,000 proteins in very different proteins in the human, in a human. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, human so when you study like this, you have to check so that you can potentially find in your experiment 20,000 different proteins. So these are too many. And uh -huh. many times these some proteins are being expressed there, but it's not because uh, they are being expressed because of the pathogen, but it's just because the cell is alive and, and it needs Producing the protein. No? Uh -huh. Or in many cases, people just don't know exactly what is the function of these proteins. So they sometimes appear and nobody knows why exactly they are present uh -huh. there. So the experimentalists, they measure maybe every protein that is present there. And then the, the person that is analyzing the data will will be discarding, okay, these proteins were present in this other infection um, process or in, with this other pathogen. Or uh, these proteins are essential because they are present always in, in blood, in liver, in skin. So you can discard and then narrow down and then you have few proteins that are maybe unique or almost unique from the Associated experiment to the that you're uh -huh. Yeah, and and then you you do more things. No, like let's see these proteins. I don't know, depending on what what you're working, but you start uh, checking how these proteins may look like, if they are big, if they are small, if they look like and they should have some enzymatic activity, some some functions that you can already predict or not. Uh -huh. So many things that you can do. Like, it's... well, in a way, it seems that for the large number of I don't know proteins that you can find. It is really necessary to use computational biology, or I mean, computational tools for to analyze that. 
So how was it done before? By hand. So By hand. just uh, maybe 40 years ago, uh -huh. uh, the sequencing. So when you read every letter from a um, piece of DNA, was sequenced by hand. So you, you had to go letter by letter doing one different step in a, yeah, you started degrading the DNA letter by letter and then run it in, um, it's called gel. So you had to do it by hand and with your eye, see which letter was present there. Um, wow. So this, of course, took like the whole PhD of a student to sequence the genome of a small virus. And the viruses, they are small in size, but they also have a small genome in general. Uh -huh. And then like 20 years ago, people wanted to sequence the human genome. So they had to use like several, uh, they, they built a consortium where many labs, many groups in different countries contributed like sequencing one half of chromosome one and then the other half of chromosome two. So they had to join forces because that was a lot of job for a single lab to sequence half of the chromosome. But now you just have a machine, very big, very expensive, that gives you the full uh, genome. But now what you need is also like a big cluster or a very good computer to analyze this, this data because it generated uh, a lot of data that you need to ensemble and understand. No? So it's exactly the same genome, but now it's very easy because there are computational tools. And before you had to split the job and even before you couldn't, you, you just couldn't. Yeah. You had to do it with very small genomes, small viruses, because uh -huh. it was impossible. And that's for any any other technology also. Like before, uh, people work only with a single chromosome. They had to use some um, engineer bacteria to to do the cloning, to do uh, the process of working with pieces of the DNA of the genome of, for example, the human. And now now you you can do it for the the whole human genome. But now now the technologies also allow you to, to study not only the genome but also the proteins at the same time and also the lipids at the same time so the data is just multiplying and now it's possible because the technology has improved and, and also the computational tools oh that's interesting so what is next like what will be the next step i think the next is to interpret the data because there is a lot of data and uh, so there, there is many people uh, developing new technologies so uh -huh. creating new types of data sets. And that's like the hype to do something completely new, no? because that sells better. But then many things are incomplete. No? For example, maybe, maybe the human genome is quite well understood because it's, it's relevant, it's important. There is money to study the human genome, but there are many other genomes that are not uh, well done. No? So they don't have the same quality, but uh, now it's not that relevant is not a hype so you don't finish studying right. many things no? and one thing is different genomes from different um, I don't know species pathogens but other one is also uh, at smaller level some mechanisms you know that maybe they are already partially understood so people didn't finish studying it no understanding everything so I think there is a lot of data that can be reanalyzed or in parallel with developing new technologies, but also developing methods and uh -huh. you know, people that are interested in, in finishing what hasn't been finished. Uh -huh. Are we at the point that we know, like if we tweak, I don't know, uh, a letter on, on the genome, we understand what's going to happen or we're not at, at that point yet? <laughs> it's a very complicated question. <laughs> In many cases, we understand what happens if, if you change a letter, no? There is data on that. For example, uh, not 
everyone has the same genome, so there are mutations already or variations. Mutation and yeah. variation uh, is the same, so a mutation is nothing to be scared of. It's uh -huh. just a change. Um, so you can always see, like, okay, this change uh, happens often, so that means it's not, nothing really bad. No? It doesn't change, uh, doesn't make you unhealthy or more pathogenic. No? So you can infer this, like, um, what is the importance of a change in your DNA by, by checking databases. No? But also, you can do uh, these kind of experiments, for example, with your lab animals. Um, you can just do the, the mutation you want and try to see what happens. No, uh -huh. That's at one level. But another level is the genome is huge, and what we know about the genome is very little. So in many, many cases, some of these changes, we just don't know why. Um, what happens. No? Uh -huh. I think it's more likely that you find a mutation that you don't know what happens than that you have the data to understand or interpret what may happen when this mutation happens. Yeah. Is there a lot of kind of redundant information in the DNA uh, that you change it and it doesn't seem to express in, in, any, in any way? Yeah. Depends how you define redundant. But yeah. Uh -huh. uh, so if redundant is... Uh, there is absolutely no benefit of having the same thing twice. No, probably, probably everything is there because of a benefit. So, um, but but when you have redundance, then you have the chance that one of your redundant elements can change, and then if that was not a positive thing, you, you still have the backup. You no, know? or you can have even uh, multiple copies of the same, and then each of them can change. Uh, so you can explore like a bigger space uh, at the same time and then whatever works the best, it will get fixed and then will be good for the, for the organism. So it's, it's like some sort of, I don't know, uh, error correcting mechanism that the DNA has. And if you messed up something, then just repair it somehow? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in humans, we have uh, two chromosomes of, of everything. So two pairs. So yeah, that's the safety mechanism. If if the one coming from the father is not good, maybe the one coming from the mother will uh, do the job and solve this problem. So yeah, and that's that's at the level of chromosomes, but also at the level of genes. And then even two very different genes can do the same job. So in case one is not working because of a reason, uh, then you have the other gene that will do the same job, but uh, it was there as a, as a backup. Do, do you know, like, how does it decide, like, which, I don't know, variant is better or it's just like kind of uh, whatever is more successful? Well, it's all because of the evolution. So uh -huh. at some point, maybe one of these copies was so, so bad that the organism couldn't Survive. continue alive, had uh -huh. to die and couldn't reproduce. So the population that didn't have this uh, deleterious mutation didn't die, so it could reproduce, and then that's why we have it. We still have it. Okay. So it's all because of uh, evolution, because of a selection that selected uh, the things that were not deleterious, they keep them, and the ones that were deleterious, they just disappear. So we don't see them now. So, but I think you mentioned so there's two copies of every part. Genes? The, the chromosome. chromosomes. Yeah, there's two copies, and then probably one of them gets a little bit messed up, right? So you take the other one. So how you decide this? How the cell is deciding for that? Uh -huh. uh, mm, I don't know. <laughs> I, I mean, you probably have um, you probably have both copies, and, and and both copies are being produced. 
Uh-huh. Uh, just that one will not do the job and the other one will do the job. Maybe the one that is not good will will be there um, affecting a little bit the function of the protein that is correct or good. And uh-huh. so that will reduce the efficiency or the whatever function they have. Um, but in the end, the function still exists. So, so both proteins will be there. It depends there. completely uh-huh. on, on how... I mean, that's the case where when both proteins were already present and ready to work. No? But uh-huh. it could be that the other gene was so bad that it didn't even reach to the point where, where the gene is a protein. No? So proteins are encoded by genes. No? So what mutates, what changes are the genes. And then out of the genes, you get the protein. So oh. it can be that the protein already exists, but it's not uh, optimal, not very functional. So it will compete with a good copy. But it can also be that the gene it was so bad that, that it didn't even become a protein. No? So it's a oh. very complicated question. Uh-huh. It's, it, it's, <laughs> you can see that in many yeah. different levels. And I guess everything can happen. No? Like it, uh-huh. it can be that even the cell has a mechanism to report that this protein came with an error. So let's destroy it. No? For example, if the error makes the protein not fold correctly, so it, it has a shape that shouldn't have, then a system in the cell will capture it or will try to capture it and destroy it, no? reuse it maybe, actually. So it depends completely at the level. And I guess I told you pretty much anything can happen. Yeah. Well, the thing is, I don't know anything about like what is happening inside the cells, but I always, whenever someone knows or I see a, a watch a video or explaining something, I find it very fascinating. Uh, but it's, <laughs> it's something I don't understand why it's, uh, how is all these things happening. For example, do you know like about CRISPR? Yes. I, I guess I, I bet you know much more than than me, because yeah. it's probably more close to your field. Yeah, um, I know CRISPR is like a way that, like a very easy way to to modify the DNA. No? So uh-huh. before there were many tools or ways to do it, but it was super complicated. And the advantage with CRISPR is that uh, many steps are simplified, and well, depending on on many things, you can be quite accurate at doing the job. Uh, sometimes it's not perfect. This is not my field. That's very. Uh-huh. Uh, that's a very experimental thing, and uh, I don't do experiments. But um, yeah, it's it's like a revolution because you can easily now um, modify a genome. No, if you wanted to change uh, in your animal model, you wanted to to check what is the function of this gene. And then one option that you can have is, okay, let's mutate it or let's make it not functional and let's see what happens with the, with the animal uh-huh. or with your model. And then, so now you can just mutate it uh, with a simple experiment, actually also very cheap, and then you quickly see what happens. And before that, I think it was um, very complicated. You had to wait. Uh, in some cases, you had to work with the embryos but at the very, very early stage, you know, when you have very few cells, so you work on this uh, at this stage, and then you have to wait until the animal model grew, and then you have a, a real, for example, mouse. And then after that, you can check if uh, any function was changed, if any tissue uh-huh. now looks different. But now you can just do it in the adult animal you know, and, and check, okay, I want to study uh, the liver. And then you just target the liver and the adult stage and see if whatever mechanism you are studying, if it's happening, what you expect, or, or to see what happens. Uh-huh. 
So would it change the entire tissue or, I mean, area that you're targeting? Yeah, the area that you're targeting. Yeah. yeah. So you said that it's not in your field, but how far is, is that from your field of study? Or is there any applications from, from what you do into that? It's far, uh, but um, so what I do is I study, let's say, a, a single protein, and then I see, I try to predict what are some possible functions on this protein no? by studying the, the sequence and the, the possible structure or, or uh, relationships with other proteins that are similar. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. So this is my input. But then uh, I can find um, experiments of people that already used CRISPR-Cas to change this exact protein. No? They already uh, tried to target a part of the protein and then they modified in the gene something. So the protein now looks different. So it's slightly different. So, uh -huh. so I can use this data that other people used. So this new protein that another person used And then um, maybe there is already information on how this new mutated protein looks like. And then I can do computationally a comparison between the original one and the new one, the mutated one. And then based on this comparison, I can maybe infer that this mutation that was done artificially with CRISPR-Cas made the protein change in a confirmation that it's now impossible to bind a target or likely impossible to do its original function. And that's something that I will do based on this uh, art artificial uh -huh, modified version of the protein. So yeah, I definitely can use data that was generated by somebody that used CRISPR-Cas when I'm comparing how it looks in the original version and then in the mutated version at, in the protein level or maybe at the, at the whole genome, like what parts of this genome are, are being transcribed, meaning they, they are being used. Uh -huh. Given that that one of the two things that I'm comparing was uh, mutated with CRISPR-Cas, and then I can see what was the global change, no? Like, like uh -huh. if they only mutated a single gene, but I can now check from the whole genome what were the changes, no? But in in this case, uh, I don't care that that it was done by using CRISPR-Cas, no? Like. If it was done yeah. from the embryo or with a virus, you can use viruses to modify the genome. Yeah, I don't mind. Maybe if I know it was like an old method, those that are very noisy, that they are not very targeted, maybe okay. I can be prepared like, okay, this is not a very clean experiment, so I may find some noise, no? some extra noise, than if it was done with CRISPR-Cas because it's in many times very precise. So uh -huh. that's the only thing that I may care, no? So that's why it's good that CRISPR-Cas exists, simplifying my job, maybe. Yeah, it produces like cleaner data in a way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So in relation to the uh, trending topic, which is uh, COVID, yeah. <laughs> if a host gets infected, then it produces this thing called the antibodies, right? But I don't exactly know what are the antibodies. I just know that somehow it causes the, the host to be immune to future infection. Yeah. So do you know anything about that or how is it produced? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a long story. I think you can take a one semester course on antibodies. <laughs> um, <laughs> Give us a crash course in that. <laughs> <laughs> so these antibodies are proteins. No? Uh -huh. The different thing with, with any other protein is that these proteins are not exactly encoded in the genome. So it's not like uh, you have one antibody and then you will find it in the genome. But it's created from pieces of DNA in the genome. 
So uh -huh. it does some combinatorics in a specific loci of the genome. Uh, it takes some parts, puts them together, and then even adds some changes, actually mutations. So uh, this is happening in, in your body, in the cells that produce these antibodies. So in the end, these proteins are often random, mm -hmm. kind of random. <laughs> uh -huh. So it's based on some uh, initial pieces of genes, so it's not completely random, but then it varies a lot. And then what your body does is then it tries to show these newly created and almost random proteins against things that your body already detected as bad ones, no? for example, okay. pathogens. So first, your organism finds a, a pathogen, for example, the virus, the COVID, and then it detects it, and then it will uh, present it into the different uh, antibodies. And then, um, because there are many... <laughs> So uh -huh. sometimes some of them will uh, recognize the pathogen or a piece of the pathogen. And then once this happens, then the human immune system will, will use this antibody as a flag. So the antibody will be attached to the pathogen or the... Yeah, I'm simplifying many things. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, it's but, okay, it's okay. But I hope this helps you understand what is this. And, but it's, of course, many more details that should be added. Yeah. So now this pathogen or the infected cell has like a flag, a red flag that says this is a pathogen or this is infected with a pathogen. So uh -huh. another cell or another mechanism will come and will destroy this flag the cell. cell. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. So that's how it works. So sometimes because this comes from a kind of random process, the making of the antibody. So some people just don't create the correct antibody. No? Or don't create the other cell that recognizes this flag, no? Because the flag was so different that the other the cell that helps uh, didn't do the correct job. So this slightly random process is what possibly makes a lot of these differences between how a person is responding and another person is responding. And then there are these therapies now that are called monoclonal antibodies. What they did is, okay, they found in a clinical mm -hmm. study they found already a person that produced a very, very nice flag, a very nice antibody, or a set of nice antibodies that worked very well. So they just used the same antibodies and used them in, a, in an infected person that is not responding by, by themselves. Okay. And then that's what is called uh, monoclonal antibody therapy. So it's complicated. I think there are many approaches to do this, but the point is that, that the antibodies are the ones that are helping but some people don't produce the correct ones, but other people already produce the correct ones. So you can use these ones either directly from the blood of the person or uh -huh. you produce them artificially and then you, you use it. Infusion. And still, that's not for sure that it's going to work because there are many other things that also need to work well in combination with this special and good antibody. Oh, so do you know what determines whether like a person may produce the right ones or is it the... On a particular uh, biology or is uh, the immune system or is, is it's just not known? I don't know. I don't know. Um, <laughs> these antibodies or the input to generate the antibody is in the genome. So if you uh -huh. don't have the correct uh, initial piece of the gene that will later become the, the antibody, if you don't have it in your genome, then you only rely on the successful uh, random mutation to create what you need no? oh, so it okay. could be it could be also influenced by what is your uh, initial repertoire your or your initial genome no 
but everything like has a certain influence. But in the end, there are so many things that have an influence that at the moment we cannot really uh, measure and say, oh, that's the reason or that wasn't oh, the reason okay. because uh -huh. there are many small steps that contribute. No, and so it could be parts. it could be that you had this gene and that was good, but then. The process after that, the mutation process happened in the in the correct direction, so you ended up having the correct antibody. Many things. That that's why, even though many people are studying this COVID thing, um, many things we don't know because it's not very straightforward no? uh, uh -huh. to interpret and, and understand a process. Even though we know a lot of things, uh, many things we yeah. don't. Know. So, is that one of the reasons why it is so complicated to have a vaccine in in a short period of time? Because you don't know exactly how to produce it. Yeah. So definitely humans know how to make vaccines no? because we have many very good vaccines already. The problem is that it changes from pathogen to pathogen. No? Uh, so how the pathogen infects changes you know, if it's a bacteria and if it's a virus, but also between viruses, some viruses infect some tissues, other ones infect other tissues. No? Some are in the respiratory viruses, other infect other organs. So we know how to make vaccines, but we need to understand the pathogen. We need to understand how it works, what it does to infect, to then target a vaccine that, that may work for that. No? So in this case, thankfully, many people or many groups started working on this pathogen. So we had a chance that many different approaches were working at the same time. No? Even though we, of course, know that many of them will fail because that was not the correct approach. But there were so many different approaches that, and a lot of communication from the early days uh -huh. that uh, whatever was not working, then people just shared this data, these results, and then people could refocus on, on what is happening. What is actually working. So the first thing is that we need to first understand what is the pathogen doing. You know? If we can use an approach that worked for another pathogen, or we just need a different approach. So that's why it takes time, you no? Know? Uh -huh. And then test everything, see, okay, in theory, this virus is a respiratory virus, so it should use these and these uh, mechanisms, and then try to use what we know should work on this. So even in a variant, for example, right now, there's like many variants of COVID, some of them that are a lot more, well, they seem to be spreading a lot more rapidly than the original mm -hmm. one. So if, for example, we get vaccinated for the first one, it is not quite likely that we'll be still immune for the second variant because the antibodies that they two are generating are quite different. <laughs> yeah, so you can uh, kind of predict at some point if a variant will affect it or not. Because you know the molecule, you know the protein that you're targeting, you know your vaccine, so you know where in the protein there is a change. Right? Oh, okay. So you can uh -huh. predict, okay, the binding, the mutation is not happening in the surface or in the area that is doing the interaction, right? Uh -huh. um, oh, I see. So at some point you can predict, and that's what the pharmaceutical companies are saying, that they predict that it's not going to be necessary to change the vaccine. Oh. But the problem is that it's a very new pathogen, so we don't know everything. So the assumption in many cases is that we know exactly which phase or which side of the protein is being used at the moment of the infection and at the moment of the interaction with the vaccine. Uh -huh. But if we don't know, if it happens that, that actually this protein is interacting with another human protein or that this alternative interaction, well, alternative for us, 
is actually the, the main interaction that the virus is using. And all this time we were focusing on another phase or on another side of the protein. Uh -huh. Then that will be a problem. And, and that's just because we haven't had enough time to explore, to understand exactly how it's infecting the virus. And that's actually one possibility that I recently read that probably the receptor that many people were thinking that was the main one is actually not the main one or could be an alternative receptor. And then that's a, a, a big change on what has been done. And that's just because uh -huh. we, we, ha we didn't know it before. No? Oh, that's interesting. So you can do some predictions, but you do these predictions based on what you at the moment know. But then maybe later in a month or later, we understand another thing and then we need to rethink everything. And that's always in science, no? Like, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. we need to rethink things and you make mistakes because you didn't, you didn't understand it. You couldn't know you uh -huh. were missing a very important information. It is interesting that then there is like a possibility that the same vaccine will be effective to other variants of the of the pathogen uh, mm -hmm. just by knowing what was the mutation, what was the change from the original one to the variant. Yeah, and and we we completely can hope that the vaccines will work for several strains because for other vaccines like measles, rubella. The vaccines have been working efficiently for many years, 40 years or maybe more. Yeah. So sometimes a vaccine is good enough even after a long time that uh, probably the virus has been mutating. But in other cases like influenza, that's different. No? The flu changes every year and the vaccine is not good enough. Oh, okay. So is it possible that we are in this scenario where this pathogen is changing, I don't know, seasonally and they will have to change a vaccine and get vaccinated like every season that's still a possibility it's possible yeah, yeah. but probably next time <laughs> i hope it's not the case but probably mm -hmm. if another vaccine needs to be done a lot of things were already discovered and understood yeah. so maybe the process will be even faster yeah even more developed that was fast for the first vaccine but now the next one will probably be faster uh -huh. so one more question in the same ballpark how come when we get vaccinated before flu season for the next variant of the virus, does it actually work? Because it, do you know like what's going to be the next variant of the virus or is it done with the previous variant of the virus? It's actually a guess for the flu vaccine. People just guess which one will be the next one. You, you can do it oh. because you sequence or you check which influenza viruses are circulating in the population. So you see that, okay, there is one that it's quite different and is maybe increasing in time, no? Uh, okay. So you uh -huh. just predict based on the frequencies of new strains. Also, you have the advantage that you have half of the world is winter and the other half is summer. So you can tell, okay, what is happening in the winter or in the half where it's winter? Well, that's what it's going to happen in six months after. In the next one is... So you can take advantage of this. But also, if you are not sure which one is the next one, you just make different ones. No? So sometimes the vaccines, I think they come with, with more than one possibility, like three different possibilities, in trying to aim for the most common one. The most likely candidates of the, yeah, yeah, of the yeah. strains. But in the end, you are guessing. So every year the efficiency of the flu vaccine changes no? because uh, you didn't aim perfectly. Oh, that's interesting. Because, mm -hmm. I mean, there's many people who are kind of against the vaccines and their argument was, well, the vaccine is made based on the previous variant, so 
I don't know, it's probably a big source of misinformation that is not actually outdated. It's, they're trying to guess what's going to be next. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's popular science. <laughs> <laughs> so do you get to learn Chinese in Singapore? No, of course not. <laughs> no, it's really difficult. Um, it is difficult. Uh, no, and all my friends uh, spoke English because I was in an institute, faculty of biochemistry so everyone was uh, doing science and everything was in english so it was hard to uh-huh. to start picking up few things in chinese but then when you go to get some food maybe that that was my first uh, the first time i could learn something but no i i had to start learning chinese um, uh, later when i was in germany actually <laughs> So, really? Um, How come? Yeah, because I discovered I really like the culture, and I, I think it's it's a good business to learn Chinese these days. So if you can speak English, Spanish, and Chinese, you can communicate with many people. And and I like these cultures actually, right? Yeah. So I I've been trying to learn Chinese, but it's it's really hard. Yeah. So it's taking me a lot more time than I think than when I studied another language. But I'm trying. Also, I have many friends, and then every time I learn a nice expression, I try to use it. <laughs> because I think if you use it, it's easier to remember. Then there are these apps on your cell phone that have like many um, activities, no? like you can watch a video of somebody speaking, so a real person, plus the robot reading you expressions, words. Uh-huh. So I'm, I'm trying, I'm trying, but I need to practice so it really starts flowing. Yeah, I think it's very hard for native Spanish speakers because it... In Spanish, there's very few sounds. All our sounds are kind of just very well defined and monotone. It's like A, A, E, O, U, and so there's not much variance. And then S and C sound pretty much the same. And But when you change to Chinese, all of the tones and the sounds are very different. There's a lot of nuance. So for us to like understand the, the nuances on the sounds, it's... Uh, it's very complicated, at least it is for me. I still don't get quite the difference between the the T sound and the C sound. It's it's very, very complicated. But we have the B and the P, no? which for us is very clear, the difference. And I think for some people, it's very hard to understand what's the difference between B and P. Uh-huh. So yeah, it's just that we are not used to. We only have five vowels, but we have these other consonants. Maybe. Yeah. Has it been hard for you? What part of learning Chinese has been more challenging? To memorize. You need to memorize everything. Also, you cannot do associations, or very few times you can do associations. I think I'm very good at learning things when I associate things. So learning French uh-huh. was easy, I think, because there are many similar things, and you can just try to guess, okay, it's in French, so just remove this letter at the end or something like that. Yeah. But for Chinese, it's just no. You just need to memorize everything. Memorize. Yeah. And and, and that's, that's the hardest part because um, I have a bad memory, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Something that I also find really hard is that you cannot read because the character doesn't say anything about... Well, I mean, for native Chinese speakers, they say that you can read sometimes from the characters, but... For us, it's impossible to know what the sound is. Yeah. But how, how do you pronounce but actually, that? Actually, I, I think it's a huge help that we have uh, some technology and then you can put in Google Translate. You can start uh, drawing the character and then you can find the meaning of this character. No? But imagine before technology uh-huh. to look for a character in a kind of dictionary, 
that's, that's <laughs> I cannot even imagine. It was impossible. Like, <laughs> yeah, 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 but at least we can draw it with our finger and, and try to. No, it will help yeah. you actually. Like you can start typing, and then it will autocomplete because there are expressions or phrases that are more common than other expressions. So, yeah. so it helps you a lot. So I think thanks to the technology, it's getting a bit easier. I was going to ask you something else, but I just got caught on the Chinese conversation. Because <laughs> my, my girlfriend is from China, so I'm trying to learn how to speak Chinese, but it's very hard, man. <laughs> it's, it's some complicated thing. So how do you feel about going to China? Are you prepared? I'm, I'm super looking forward. Uh, so I understand that there are people that love Europe, you know, that, that find everything in Europe uh, amazing, as in a preference, right? But uh, uh -huh. for me, many things that I see in, in China or in Southeast Asia are the things that I like. You know? For example, uh, I like technology or I like, uh, I admire these societies that are, um, that love and, and adopt the development of technology. You know? And then when I'm in Europe, it's the opposite. It's, it's like, oh no, why should we pay so much attention to technology or use it in, in everything when you... For example, in Europe, when you're in the train station or in the train, there is often a person saying, uh, the train is coming in five minutes, uh, platform five. This a robot can do. Yeah? Or we are yeah, arriving yeah. At, at the next station in one minute, the door will open uh, on the right side. You can have a robot for that, but they don't like that. They don't like that there is this loss of um, human communication or uh -huh. that they lose this uh, society culture feeling or thing uh -huh. and for me i don't care like it's not like i hate people or i dislike talking to people of course i do but but i just don't see the need to have a person telling me something instead of a machine no and then when i go to yeah. asia and china it's, it's the opposite it's like technology for everything so whatever thing that can improve in your life yeah or make it uh, easier or make it uh, more standard maybe and that you can use the technology, then just use it, no? Use a robot for cleaning, use a robot to to determine if you are um, the person with the ticket or, um, yeah, anything that you can sell, then just only do it yourself or with your cell phone without the need of interacting with someone. I think that adds up efficiency, Yeah. even though you interact less with humans. For example, you go to a restaurant, then you can scan the QR code in the table Order from your cell phone, add your friends who will join you in the table so everyone can choose their own food. Then um, you also have your credit card so you get uh, deducted what you're paying. And then maybe a person comes with a menu yeah? and you don't really need to interact with this person. You can still tip. Um, actually, you don't uh -huh. tip in China. But then there are no problems that the waiter understood, ah, you said with chili instead of without chili. Or or the waiter understands, yeah. ah, but you said uh, two portions or a, or a big portion and a small portion, and I brought two big ones. So, so there is a lot of efficiency that can be achieved. Uh -huh. And uh, now imagine if you are a foreigner and you just need to see the, the drawings or the pictures the menu. Of, of, your, of your dishes. So for me, that's amazing. For me, it's yeah. efficient, advantageous, because I don't speak the language, so I don't need to communicate with the person. And and still, I want to learn Chinese, so I'm not saying that I'm not want to communicate with, with the people there. It's just that I don't want to make mistakes because of a communication issue. No? It makes it easier to, you know, 
survive in that situation, yeah. right? Then, for example, uh, to do all these things in the restaurant or in the in the train station, you need your cell phone. So then you use more battery when you're in China than when you are in Germany. So then they invented <laughs> these power bank stations. So in every in every Seven Eleven, you go there and and you can scan again your phone. Then you give your data. Now you you identify your cell phone and then you can take one of the power banks that are already pre-charged and then you you go take your metro uh -huh. to go to your next destination you charge your phone and then you return it in the next 7-eleven uh, so that's uh -huh. amazing you don't have it in europe but you also don't need it because nobody wants to use the cell phone no it's like oh you're with me why would you use your cell phone <laughs> Do you find it in every country in Europe that you went to, or is it more prevalent in some of them than in others? <laughs> I don't know. I think I think UK they also use a lot of technology and they they embrace it. Yeah, they embrace it much more than than Germany or France. But Germany is definitely not a place where you will see these kind of changes so soon. And you can quantify this, for example, uh, the use of optic fiber. Uh -huh, optic fiber. Um, so there is almost no optic fiber in Germany. Why? Because they don't need it. They, no, when people need it, then the companies develop it, right? And they don't. Uh -huh. So do you think it is because, I don't know, they are afraid to give up on their cultural heritage that in a way that that's threatening them in, in, that, in that sense? Mm, maybe it's, it's... Or it's more conservative? I don't know. I mean, it's a cultural thing because you can explore other things. Um, another thing that I've noticed is that technology arrives at different moments. For example, in Myanmar, I was traveling in Myanmar in some rural villages, like really rural, very poor. And they, in some of these villages, they didn't have uh, electricity. No? But everyone had a smartphone. So, so that's a must. Like nobody can be there without a smartphone. So what do they have? They have solar panels. And you can see the, the kids or the anyone, adults, next to their solar panel charging their cell phone because these are the new priorities. This is how the technology arrived. So, so it arrived mm -hmm. first, the cell phone, the smartphone. They found it useful, necessary to communicate. And then the electricity, it, it never arrived. Now they have solar panels. They solve their basic needs. And it's just the things that technology arrived in a different um, order than in Europe or our countries. So for us, it's, it's like normal, no? Of course, it's normal to have first electricity and then a phone and then a smartphone. But for others, it's just not like this. It's, it's a different order. Uh -huh. And that was amazing for me to see it. And But, but then other technologies as well like where do you say that is in Men Menmo? Myanmar as uh, so it's uh, Myanmar um, Burma it used to be called Burma now it's Myanmar Burma where is that <laughs> <laughs> south, really my... south of China it's in between Thailand and China west of Laos west of Vietnam uh-huh that sounds more familiar but never I, I think I never heard of Myanmar oh it's an amazing country I love it I have a yeah. few friends from there, so they invited me. So I went there twice. Uh -huh. It's so different. I think that's why I like it. Like everything is just different, like another world. What's special about it? <laughs> the food, for example, is, is super different. It, they always or very often have like many small dishes 
and then you just share and you get like a you take spoons of every small container and they eat uh, tea leaves they have a delicious tea leaf, tea leaf? Tea leaf salad um, tea leaf so salad. they eat a lot of tea leaves and I think it's good for looking young and healthy <laughs> they look super young <laughs> um, it's mostly Buddhist culture uh-huh. it sounds uh, I would presume that it's a very small country and probably very different from China or perhaps uh, different still from Singapore and Malaysia. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's it's, that's it's what different. I... I cannot compare it. Like, But I have one of these days I have to like at least Google what, what <laughs> Myanmar is about <laughs> to have some more clear image of what have you been? Uh, what is Myanmar? Yeah. <laughs> Ugo, it's been like more than an hour. Thank you so much for, for being for explaining us about what's what you do and which countries have you been into and uh, everything we need to know about pathogens and <laughs> infections. <laughs> and I hope I was, yeah, I was a bit we, clear because sometimes it, it's complicated to explain a few things when you uh, when you work with this every day and then you you forget that I'm, yeah. I'm using the term um, lipid and maybe that's not how everyone understands it, right? Uh-huh. If something I, for example, didn't, I wasn't very familiar with is what does it have to do with like lipids and pathogens and why would you study the two <laughs> together? Uh, but now I think it's, it's a lot more clear. Yeah. And, but I really uh, like to talk about biology with non-biologists. It's, it's really fun because then I can also make clear I, I know how to explain things without being too general. Or No, there are always exceptions. So you can, you always have to be careful on saying uh, anything yeah. general because in biology there is always exceptions and i think when you talk about your field with some people that are not in your field you, you really force you to articulate well and to understand what was going mm-hmm. on because otherwise the other person is not going to understand what you're doing yeah it was fun well thank you for for making the effort. And a pleasure to talk to you again <laughs> after uh, i don't know seven years probably yeah eight years perhaps i don't even remember mm-hmm. okay Right. See ya. See ya. Another time. Bye.